all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 242 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Power Stars episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the total number of Power Stars a player can collect in Super Mario Galaxy and Super Mario Galaxy 2 for the Wii is... 242. And with that wonderful little bit of Super Mario Galaxy knowledge, I, of course, am mad. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. What up, yo? Well, I, I, I have a question for you. I have an If you answer. don't mind me asking. Could be, I don't know, but it will be an answer. Sure, go ahead. So, growing up as a kid, I, I wasn't really big into, I guess, what you would call the geek culture for me as a kid, when I thought of a geek culture, I would think of Star Trek, really. And I think maybe it was in the mid to late to mid to late 90s when the prequel Star Wars movies came out, you saw more people like balls deep, you know, really into Star Wars. And you know, people were getting their kids into Star Wars and yada yada yada. So now Star Wars has become like a big nerdy geeky thing, very much like how big Star Trek Always had been, I suppose. At least that's how I perceived it. And I never really associated myself as a geek, as a sci-fi geek. Well, I, I want to know if being a big enough fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000 that I went to go see a live showing of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Not, I mean, not just one show, but two shows because they did two different they riffed two different movies back to back and it wasn't like riff track style like they actually performed what you would see on the tv show on stage and i had a bitchin good time now because i'm such a big fan of mystery science theater does that make me a geek or a nerd in some way and i am not saying that being a geek or a nerd is bad it's just if so, I, I'm, I'm very new to this. Very new. And I just don't know what to call myself. I want to feel... Make me feel comfortable, Matthew. Make me feel comfortable. I would just say that you're a fan of MST3K. Which, by the way, I was really jealous that you got to go to the live show. So uh, there's that. But, um, no, I, I mean, I guess you could say... I, I don't really think that Mystery Science Theater... 3000 is so much a part of geek culture as it as it is um a part of a cult culture and and i mean that in terms of those who love the cult classic films and and tv shows and things of that nature that um never really took off and made it into the mainstream, but always had an underlying influence because just enough people knew what it was and would talk about things that they'd seen and make references and stuff like that. Um, I do believe that a lot of the, a lot of the, the pull in the geek culture that we have today was responsible for its revival in that regard. So I can see why some people might think that, but, um, it was just damn good comedy and 
I think if you're, you, I, I would just, I think it would just be safe to say that you are a fan. You are an MST3K fan. That is a load off my back. I've been thinking about that all day today. Worried. Soon I'm going to have to go to conventions and all that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. What I really like about MST3K is that it's still good. It's proven itself not just a novelty, not just a piece of nostalgia, but a lot of us, at least I was, very concerned about the new show on Netflix that they came out with uh, some months ago. But it's damn good. Like, the the guys that they played, uh, that they got to play the bots and Jonah, is fantastic. Like, great comic timing, and if there's one thing I will say, my rave review of these guys, especially the live show, and, and really, it, it's worth, if you are a big fan, it is worth traveling to go and see it. Like, if it's in the next city over, if you are able to, travel. It's definitely worth it. They just have, like, this energy and this sense of fun. It's one of those, like, fun, communal get-togethers. Whenever they're riffing a movie and they start laughing at somebody's joke, the audience laughs along with them because we know why it's funny. And it's just, like, that much fun. You know, kind of like whenever you watch SNL and you see somebody crack up. And you're you're living the moment with them. So you're laughing at them laughing. And it's, like, a genuine enjoyment. So I'm very happy to see MST3K continuing to thrive 20-some-odd years later. Uh, 29 years now, because it came out in 88. So, God, that's crazy. I mean, and here's something that's kind of scary when you think about it. In just two and a half years, the 90s will be 30 years ago. Yep. So, remember that. (laughs) And feel old. Uh, would you like to jump into the old mail sack? Please tell me we have at least hate mail from those who were offended by our grapefruit technique conversation. Or or, or, or people were reaching out well, to demonstrate, maybe. Before we get there, uh, before I guess before we get there, I may as well tell you. So I was in the mood to watch The Room this last week. I, I decided that if I... And you know what? I was in the mood, so... By God, I'm going to take some people with me this time. And did you go to River Oaks? We didn't, no, we did not go to River Oaks. I, I instead just scheduled a viewing here at the house. Okay. And so I had my neighbor friends come over. I made uh, the wife sit down, and, and, they, and they had never seen it, so it was great. I got to you know impart to them. And we had a good time, and, and yet at the same time they were like, wow, this movie is so bad. Uh, one of my neighbors was like, thank you for, you know, taking these two hours of my life that I'll never get back. And I'm like, you had a good time and you know you did. And she was like, I don't care that I had a good time. I will still never get these two hours back. I'm like, you're kind of, you know, uh, defeating the purpose of having the fun with the room. And so this then led to weird discussions somehow because of torture, right? Like, oh my gosh, the kind of torture and stuff that you you know, put yourself through and everything like that, which then led us to the, uh, somebody mentioning the grapefruit technique. Somebody actually mentioned it? A part of your group? Yeah. Really? Yes. I didn't realize you can like bring it up in a party setting. Well, yeah, as, as a whole funny, yeah, as like a funny outrageous thing or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, the great, and it turned out that of course the most sheltered person I have ever met in my life, my wife, 
is like, what are y'all talking about? And we're all like, really? And so we showed it to her. We had to show her the video. And um, how did it go it, again? <laughs> I'm I'm resting my voice. And y'all, you you can refer to episode 241 to find out more. But that was that was what I was getting at because I ended up playing the opening of our show so that they could get the full effect of not just the grapefruit technique but also all the lol shock stuff and sounding and everything else and it was hilarious to watch both my wife and one of my neighbor friends just their faces devolved into just pure horror and disgust and yet they still laughed like it was still funny despite how horrifically disgusted they were by the topics of our show. They either enjoyed the opening of our show more than Tommy Wiseau's The Room, or the opening of our show is worse than Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Therefore, it was funnier. I have no idea. But I don't know. I, I definitely didn't feel like it was a wasted night. And that's all that matters, really, since you're the one who threw the, put the whole thing together. That is right. So anyway, now... Let's uh, go check out the old mail sack and listen for our seemingly weekly castration noise. Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Ah, sad. Castration again. Oh no! We suck again! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should add that to the end of that. About, I, I, need, I, to, I need to put that clip at the that sound bite at the end of the castration. Sound. I was going to say because because Sab say what you will, Rob Schneider, due to, due to the water boy, Rob Schneider gave us that, and we will always have it. So <laughs> there you go. Um. Anyway, yeah, no, not, nothing in the old mail sack. Although we do have another about 20 followers uh, for our Twitter, so we always love that. Thank you very much for all the follows we've been getting. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we are, of course, at the SLS cast. And please, 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 we would really like to get some email. Um, and even as Tim said, probably hate mail at this point would be good. And, yeah, of course, you can do that by sending us an email to the show at slscast.com. And I believe without further ado, we can go to the news. Isn't that right, sir? You know, I think if we change our thing from, like, .com to .com, maybe we'd get more feedback. <laughs> we'll get... We'll, we'll get... We'll certainly get some kind of feedback. I don't know if it's the kind that we want, though. <laughs> Let's do the news. Here we go, folks. It's the news. First up from me, a real quick story here from ComingSoon.net by way of Max Every. Drago confirmed for Creed 2 as Stallone finishes script. 
That's right. In a new Instagram post, Rocky creator Sylvester Stallone confirmed several things about MGM's in-development Creed 2. For one, that he himself has written the full script, or at least what will serve as the basis for the script, after Ryan Coogler and Aaron Covington wrote the last one by themselves. Second, he has solidified what many had assumed for a while, which is that Dolph Lundgren's Ivan Drago will, and probably his offspring, will be involved in a big bloody battle with Adonis Creed in the ring. Uh, and the post from Instagram uh, says, Just done! If you are curious, around 439 handwritten pages translates into about a 120-page typed screenplay. Hashtag writer's cramp, hashtag Rocky Balboa, hashtag Drago, hashtag Adonis Creed, and hashtag MGM. Um... And that's really all that's important about this article. It is actually about half of it, so just a little bit more there if you want to get into that. I am curious, though, Tim. What do you think? Do you think that if he dies, he dies? Uh, do you think he? Do you, do you think he should make a comeback on this? Or well, he already I mean, made his comeback. It would be rather fitting. <laughs> it was Kindergarten Cop too, right? <laughs> oh, Dolph Lundgren. You're talking about Dolph. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes. Well, well, I mean, Rocky made his comeback in Rocky Balboa. Then that was actually his second comeback. Honestly, one thing I don't want to happen, which I can see will happen because they're both up there in age, and I can see them getting to the point where by the end of the movie, like they're going to have this heated head-butting thing for most of the film. Then by the end of the movie, <laughs> they're going to be buddies, and they're going to come together. I don't know if they can. Yeah. I mean, because... If you think about it, Adonis is really going to be the stick in the mud. I mean, because even if somehow, some way, Rocky and Ivan were to work it out, I mean, there's no way that Adonis would let that go um, because he would feel like Rocky's betraying him and his dad. Um, you know, uh, I... I I don't know, but it has been 32 years since Rocky IV. Um, so, I mean, it definitely would be possible for Drago's son to come around. And I think it would be really interesting because even if, let's just say that, you know, Drago's kid's going to be like, you know, I don't know, 25-ish, 26 that means he's literally going to have grown up right as the Soviet Union collapsed. And he's going to have kind of his own shitty experiences. And it'll be interesting to see if instead of Rocky and Ivan can bond, whether or not Drago's kid and Adonis can bond. I don't know. I'm just, I don't, me personally, God damn it, I'm excited. I want to see this movie so bad. I can taste it. Literally. <laughs> you can taste I, the smarts. That's just emanating from Dolph Lundgren's brain. Yes, I, I can taste, you know, I can taste, taste the PhD, the, the montage. I can taste the the 80s anti-commie, you know, pinko montage that is Rocky Four. Well, you know, he, here's the thing. Like, if they don't do it with Creed 2, Creed 3, or whatever they're going to call it. I don't think they're going to, I mean, I don't know if they're going to call it Creed 2 or, or what. But the second sequel, the third movie... I can totally see them do the nostalgia thing because like we're seeing it already with Thor. We've been seeing it with Guardians of the Galaxy, but Thor and, and uh, 
The next X or the last X-Men movie was based in the 80s. The new one's based in the 90s. Creed and Stallone and them will always have that nostalgia pass in their back pocket. So if this one isn't as good, and if they're already not going to do this with Creed 2, it's guaranteed that Creed 3 will be the nostalgic, uh, the nostalgia movie of the Creed franchise. So that they automatically get a pass for rehashing the same workout montages, fighting montages, and building a movie <laughs> up around a match. Well, I guess. I mean, but let's. But the thing is, is let's not forget that um, Creed, in and of itself, was. Um, I mean, was a rehash of Rocky. It was, yeah. I mean, in terms of everything all the way up to Donnie losing the fight at the end, um, by decision, obviously. And so... But the performances were of, great. And I think that's oh, what yeah, kind of distracted people. Oh, absolutely. No, I, and I don't discount the fact that the performances were amazing and everything like that. But And that's what that's also kind of what made Creed this weird hybrid, because it's kind of a sequel, kind of a reboot, kind of neither kind of both. Um, and so it would be fitting, I think, to also take something that is patently lifted from the series without necessarily having to do two and three over again. Although, quite frankly, if we're bringing Drago back, then Clubber Lang's got to come back too. I mean, you can't skip over Mr. T. So... There's there's that as well. I don't know. It'll be interesting though. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I just think there's more of a direct dynamic given that Drago killed Apollo Creed in Rocky Four. So Well, how how about this as a potential Rocky movie where it's not gonna be about two men or two sons fighting, but what if what if one of them had a daughter, like Mr. T's daughter, you know, whatever his character's name, like, instead of having a son. I think this would have worked pretty neat for if for Dolph Lundgren. What if it was like his granddaughter or somebody is like this next heavyweight. And so it's billed as, oh, it's going to be Rocky and whatever Longren's character was head to head. But now it's going to be their kin. But really, it has to be not necessarily his kin, but, you know, Creed versus Lady Longren Longren or whatever her name would be. I think that would be very interesting and could create this very interesting kind of dynamic. I kind of hope that would happen in some way. Well, do, do we think Bridget Nielsen would would come back <laughs> maybe <laughs> i mean ronda rousey has been wanting you know looking for her acting debut and until she lost that fight that big fight the uh, earlier this year or last year whenever it was she was supposed to star in the update of roadhouse so i mean why not a rocky movie i think that'd be i mean i, I personally sure. that'd be again pretty interesting well, do you have anything for us, sir? Oh, yeah. Do we want to continue down the news hole on my end? or? Yeah, I, I definitely uh, want to bring this up because... All right, bring it up then. I, I, I will because we are talking about Dunkirk. That's going to be one of the films we are, or I should say, one of the experiences we will be reviewing soonish. But uh, some Christopher Nolan news here via IndieWire.com. Christopher Nolan, I won't work with Netflix because their film strategy is pointless. This article here is written by Eric Kahn and was published on July 19th. It says this, Inevitably, the debate surrounding viewing platforms leads to television, which Nolan doesn't find troubling on its own terms. His brother, Jonathan Nolan, produces the sci-fi western Westworld for HBO, saying, quote, 
Every generation thinks they're the ones who invented television and that there's never been any good television before, Nolan said. When you look at the different supposed golden eras of television, there is a tendency in the television community or the press around it to eulogize about TV. Film tends not to do that about itself. The film industry tends to not sit around and go, oh, what we do is so much better than what Howard Hawks was doing in the 50s or whatever. It's just a stylistic difference, end quote. He shrugged off the notion that TV was somehow supplementing movies in pop culture. Quote, 10 years ago, I'd get asked a lot of questions about the video game industry, end quote. He said, quote, like, is that going to kill movies or whatever? It's a different thing. Now it's VR. They're just different things. I love television. It's great. I love what my brother's doing in TV. I love watching him work in that format. It's just a completely different medium, end quote. So apparently... This is not from the article, but I was reading this article backwards. <laughs> Whenever I saved it, I saved it on page two and not page one. But that's okay, because what I just read really does in its own way set up the meat of this article. In the meat is as follows. With all of that in mind, it may be unsurprising that Nolan's not a big fan of Netflix, particularly its deprecation of the theatrical experience, Nolan says, quote, Netflix has a bizarre aversion to supporting theatrical films. They have this mindless policy of everything having to be simultaneously streamed and released, which is obviously an untenable model for theatrical presentation, so they're not even getting in the game, and I think they're missing a huge opportunity, end quote. He pointed out that Amazon, which releases its films in theaters before making them available on its platform, shouldn't be lumped in with Netflix for contributing to this issue. Quote, you can see that Amazon is very clearly happy to not make the same mistakes. The theaters have a 90-day window. It's a perfectly usable model. It's terrific, end quote. Netflix enables a larger budget and a degree of creative freedom for major global directors, and two of its productions premiered at Cannes this year, Bong Joon-ho's sci-fi satire Akjal and Noah Baumbach's The Mirowitz Stories. Nolan, apparently, is unimpressed. Saying, quote, I think the investment that Netflix is putting into interesting filmmakers and interesting projects would be more admirable if it weren't being used as some kind of bizarre leverage against shutting down theaters. It's so pointless, I don't really get it, end quote. And lastly here, Nolan tends to speak with the same grave, pointed tone found in his movies, and this isn't the same time he has lashed out at digital distribution. During a presentation at the Exhibitors Conference in Macon in March, he told the industry audience that Dunkirk needed to, quote, make you feel like you were there, and the only way to do that is through theatrical distribution, end quote. In the same presentation, on the heels of Warner Brothers, worldwide marketing and distribution president Sue Kroll remarking that, quote, Customers are telling us they want more choices with how and where they watch content, end quote. Nolan didn't mince words, saying, quote, the only platform I'm interested in talking about is theatrical exhibition, in all quotes there. Uh, the article does go on for a little bit more. Again, I read all that kind of out of order. Uh, if you want to read more about it and read it in order, you can find it at IndieWire.com. Christopher Nolan, I Won't Work With Netflix Because Their Film Strategy Is Pointless by Eric Kahn. Matt, what do you think about this? You're a little bit more than neither here nor there when it comes to Netflix. If I remember correctly, you're in the camp of if Netflix is doing it and they think it's right and people are subscribing to it, not necessarily Netflix itself, but Netflix releasing these, these movies and the people that want to watch it do watch it, that's not so much a bad thing. Well, I don't know. 
I think uh, Nolan is letting a little bit of his snobbery show as as it uh, as it happens. The problem here is is literally a complete fundamental shift in the way people consume their media. And Nolan, because of his success and his success um, doing groundbreaking things within the traditional framework of cinema and its presentation in theaters, is basically touting his glorified traditionalist view. And the problem is that he, while he has had clearly tremendous success and well-deserved tremendous success, by no means am I trying to undercut any of uh, his achievements, um, he's also one of the few people who can command the traditional status quo as it as it stands as it truly is the status quo but he's not making 260 movies a year he's making a movie every two or three years and it, it's kind of it, it's kind of like when you're if like for example mcdonald's McDonald's worldwide is suffering, right? They're having a hard time. Uh, they're, they're not like going bankrupt by any stretch of imagination, but as a corporation, McDonald's is struggling. But I can promise you here in the Houston area where fat people abound, you can go buy a McDonald's and the drive-through is packed. So it's kind of like being the owner operator of the McDonald's here in Houston going, well, McDonald's is a worldwide franchise clearly needs to keep doing what they're doing. Don't you see how well we do here? And that's the problem. Nolan is trying to put forth his ideas of things that have worked specifically for him and apply it in a blanket way across the entire world in terms of cinema and how it's consumed. Netflix doesn't do that. And we're living in a world where more and more people just don't want to go to the fucking movie theater anymore. And it's not entirely the movie theater chain's fault. It's not entirely the studio's fault. But there are things that both of these entities are doing that prohibit the kind of growth that they want to see, and they're just seeing diminishing returns after diminishing returns. Netflix has a model that fucking works. And just because you don't like that it works does not make it stop working. Amazon, as pointed out by Nolan, has kind of this happy medium but I promise you, it's only because they're trying to, their angle is the prestige level. All they're doing it for is so that they can sit there and say, we're the gold standard of streaming. Why? Because that's their marketplace. That's where they're going, they're going after that, you know, that, that higher class of clientele, as Faulty would say in Faulty Towers, right? 
that's Amazon's shtick. They want the upper middle class to uh, upper class customer. And how do you get that? The people with the refined tastes by sitting there and going, look at our award-winning content. We don't just have award-winning prime delivery anymore. We have award-winning movies. And by God, we do it the right way. If you'll notice, Cannes doesn't, uh, the Cannes Film Festival no longer wants Netflix there. And they've basically made it illegal to show Netflix content because it has to have been something that's been in the theater um, and then been out of the theater for X amount of time before it can be in can. So out goes Netflix. Nolan's doing the same thing, but by proxy. I just don't see that. I don't see that his ability to translate his individual success. I, I don't see that translation in progress. And it's not to say that I won't go see his movies. Absolutely. I will. If he's got something coming, I'm there. But it's because of him, not because of anything, not because of anything that anybody else is doing. And I think that's the key. We need people who are willing to create amazing content who are able to find ways to tweak that system. That's what makes Netflix so appealing. That's why Netflix grabs the Martin Scorsese's of the world. That's why I love him or hate him and somehow they're still making money. Adam Sandler gets four movie deals and stuff like that with Netflix. Because they know what people will watch. And they know that by grabbing people and saying, here's a fucking pile of money, just go and do. That's what works for them. That gets them subscribers. And, you know, three and four hundred million subscribers can't be wrong. Well, there is the bigger picture that I think a lot of people don't realize when it comes to Netflix. And why I personally hold Amazon, I put it more on a pedestal. When Adam Sandler gets a four-movie deal and however much money he gets to make those movies, it's exactly how it sounds. Adam Sandler is getting that money to make those movies. Okay. So I know people, one person I'm very close to who has been in the, in the industry for years, and he worked on a number of TV shows. He's a, a head of a department in the crew department. And he's always done pretty well for himself, like finding work and getting paid a certain amount of money and all that stuff. And every once in a while, since Netflix has made all these shows, he's had a chance to work on it if he absolutely had to. Luckily, I don't think he's had to work on any one for too long. Well, the thing with Netflix is that they don't like to pay people as much money. So if you are a crew, and this is, I think, why you look at some of Netflix's movies, they're not so good for the most part, but their TV shows are, because at least the TV shows, the people that work on them, are working for a longer period of time than the movies. Because I think, the, I mean, obviously the movies have a quicker turnaround than the TV shows do. Or the series, I should say, the Netflix series does. And then you look at The Irishman, because of course when Martin Scorsese says he works, he has to work with all his people. Well, Netflix isn't the sole backer. He has all these other people backing The Irishman as well. But obviously the bulk of the cash is coming from Netflix. But then again, with somebody like... Martin Scorsese, who's treated his crew heads very well, they might make the effort to forego making the amount of money that they would normally make from a studio movie to work on his Netflix movie. Again, I don't know how much money exactly where that money is coming from, from all these other people or not, but I'm just giving that as an example. 
And that's Netflix's model. One of the reasons why they don't want to follow in the footsteps of Amazon, or they don't want to rely on a theatrical release, is because basically what it comes down to is money. And, you know, they'll say it's creative freedom. And I'm sure, you know, part of that is definitely creative freedom. And you see the creativity coming from all of these really good Netflix shows. I mean, even a series of uh, of unfortunate events, granted it's very much like the Jim Carrey version, it's still a very entertaining seven, six, seven, eight part series. And then you have Stranger Things that, yeah, it's a nostalgia show and it's an entertaining show. You know, like it, it does well and you have, you know, interesting people working on it. Well, it's a TV show, so they have a little bit more time and maybe they get a little bit more of a consistent paycheck, a constant paycheck. But the movies, people just aren't getting paid enough. The people that were really the heart and soul of the creativity comes from. And I think that's where I guess it bugs me the most. And I, I think that's why I think in some way it is important for movies to go to a movie theater because it is definitely a different experience watching a movie at the movie theater. I've had many conversations with people at work at Sony who have seen Manchester by the Sea at the movie theater who normally, you know, if, if it wasn't available at the theater, they would have watched it at home. And, you know, they feel the same way as it's definitely a more involved experience watching that movie at the theater than at home. Because it's a very, like, if, if you have a distraction, you know, it takes you out of that experience. So, and I think in many ways, certain smaller movies, even if they're art house movies, are important to see at the movie theater. Just really what gets me, what really, not necessarily irks me, but makes me passionate about this, is it coming down to money. And I think that's where they're lacking with creative freedom, especially when it comes to Netflix original movies, because just really those creative types aren't getting paid that much money to be creative to their full potential. And that's really all I got to say about that, which I guess is a lot. Well, I mean, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we also know that um, Netflix comes in as the overall distributor of the content. And while, yes, there is, I mean, a Netflix studios, I'm sure, um, a lot of the production companies and stuff are through the actual um through through the studios and production companies and certain levels of distribution that are done uh in the deals that are made so like um Happy Madison Productions for example will be behind all of the Adam Sandler content and stuff um and I mean, I, I can understand that, yes, at the end of the day, there are people with families to feed. And, and even if you don't have a family, that doesn't make you as a human being any less important. And you still need to make money. Um, but, I mean, if if I give somebody $100 million to go make a movie and, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, hey, here's $100 million, you go make X amount of movies – and then I'll distribute and I'll take all that kind of stuff and then hopefully I'll make all the money at the end of it. And then you don't pay the people with your $100 million that I just gave you. That's not exactly my fault, is it? Well, I don't think Netflix is necessarily paying $100 million to make a movie. Okay, I understand. I mean, but it's kind of like a fundamental business model issue. And I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't be paid. And I'm not suggesting that, that the value of work, especially like when we had that huge, uh, blowback and stuff with the, uh, the, the, the visual effects warehouse, the people who did Life of Pi mm -hmm. and stuff. So, I mean, clearly there are problems, you know, that need to be addressed. But 
Um, in this specific instance, um, you have, you have these deals that are being done and I, I just use, you know, round numbers. I don't know if it's $10 million to make four movies or not. It's irrelevant. You know, the, the issues that you're having aren't exactly attributable directly to Netflix or if they are even in part, it's not solely Netflix. Um, you know, on the other side of it, there, there are, you know, Amazon has had for years, years now, the way that they treat their employees, uh, in all aspects of their company via online, via warehouse, via entertainment, via, um, IT. There's just article after article after article about how crappy they are to their employees and the culture that they have, and people are scared to talk, and people are overworked and underpaid. Well, that's so, that's Amazon, like that's that's yeah, not but you Amazon just said Studios. That's why you pro- wait a minute. So so it is Netflix Studios when they make the money, but it's not Amazon Studios when it's still Amazon. Well, what I'm saying is like two different. I'm talking about Netflix. Exactly, it's two different things. You can get mad at Netflix because you don't like their content. But you can't get mad at Netflix because Happy Madison doesn't do their part to take care of the people that they are. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's all a fuck system when it comes to. That's not fucked, but it's just like I, I agree I mean, that there's there's ton of problems, and don't, and I'm not I'm not trying to downplay any real and true issues that are out there. I just but it's just like so Netflix not, will come and say we'll you know we'll help you make this movie, but we're not going to give it a theatrical release, okay. and whereas it's they have an opportunity to do it to release it for the theaters but the reason why they're not doing it is because they want to have the viewership and i think that's pretty shitty with amazon at least they're saying okay we'll release it 90 days at the theater and then we'll automatically put it on amazon right i i guess i don't i mean and and again it's a fundamental thing it's it's literally a fundamental thing and this is not shitty though i mean it kind of goes against the whole art of entertainment of of, of the movies why that's where it bugs me and okay. it's not like they're making and, and, fantastic and content, fine. movie content. And, and that's fine. And that's fine. But if your argument becomes they're undercutting movies, or they're undercutting the art of cinema by not displaying things in movies, and yet their content is on par with direct-to-video anyway, I guess I've, I'm failing to see the issue. It doesn't seem to me that it's fair... To hold it against somebody, it, it's like, so does that mean that studios shouldn't do direct-to-video stuff? I'm not saying, Did, no, is, is, I'm not saying that at all. Because that's the same thing. It completely bypasses But cinema. there are obviously better movies out there than direct-to-video movies. And a lot of the stuff we see okay. direct-to-video are people that can't afford to release their stuff theatrically. Or if they do, maybe it's released theatrically in, uh, you know, in Canada or Europe sure, or, or whatever. And here it yeah, can only yeah, be sure. VOD. Yeah, and, and minimally or, you know, just a couple weeks or just... Sure, absolutely. And I'm not saying that's... But you're kind of... It just seems like... It seems like the argument starts to fall a little bit flat because you're accusing Netflix of circumventing the value of the experience of going to the cinema. But at the same time, you don't feel like the product that they that they are producing is worthwhile. So, um, and, and I agree a lot of the time with the movie side. I, I am with you on that. I mean, we've definitely, you know, said that over and over again. I mean, good God, ridiculous six. Are you fucking serious right now? But if their stuff is already on par with direct to video, 
regardless of why direct-to-video happens, but we know it happens, and it's in certain ways a viable way to get work out there and promote Okay, hold on. I think, okay, I didn't understand what you were talking about until right now. In layman's terms, you're basically saying Netflix produces shitty movies, then what's the point of, not necessarily all shitty movies, some movies are less than shit, considerably less than shit, like Ockjaw was a good movie, but it wasn't a fantastic movie. Therefore, what's the point? What's the point of them releasing it to the movie theater if their movies are already on par with movies that shouldn't even be released at the movie theater? In the theater. Okay. Exactly. I didn't know that's what you were saying. Well, it just it seems to me that that is what you are saying because you talk a, a lot, and you have mentioned earlier in what we were talking about uh, in this episode that there stuff isn't that good. Uh, Correct. The, the, the movies themselves aren't that good. But you are also stating that part of it is that they deny the experience. And another part of it is is that the money that they are saving, uh, theoretically saving by not going to it, they're also not even giving to potential employees and potential crew. Um well, but I guess what time, I'm saying that if they ever decide to make good movies, Matthew, then maybe <laughs> then I'll be pissed off and my argument will be relevant. But, you know, that might be in another 25 years when they finally get that stick out. Well, no, I guess. But I, yeah. And, and again, look, I'm not trying to say that there isn't something valid in going to the theater yeah. um, and, and that we should abandon theaters entirely. But I do think that. Getting all the way, coming all the way back to Nolan. Um, when you, when you've only got two or three or four, literally, you've got a handful of directors, the caliber of Christopher Nolan, right? You've got a handful of production companies and producers and writers, the caliber. Right of Nolan, the people that the J.J. Abrams out there and the Steven Spielbergs um, that we are starting to see, right? The Lord and Millers that we're that we're really starting to like, right? The 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 phages of the world, okay? Um, that it's that there's just not enough to justify consistently going to the theater for everything even though there are movies that are worth going to the theater for and it just seems to me that it's kind of counterintuitive to take the one guy who's worth going to see and then immediately translating the things that he does in his process and his filmmaking into every time you go to the theater if that was already the case, we wouldn't be having this discussion in the first place. If that was already the case, we wouldn't see the slide that movie theaters have been experiencing for 15 years. If that were already the case, we wouldn't see the rise of Netflix and Amazon and for fucking who knows why, Hulu and Vudu and every other streaming service that's coming up now. Okay, so to sum all this up... We inadvertently agree with each other. <laughs> yes. I think for different reasons. For but different reasons. I, I think... <laughs> but we will not have this fucking discussion again. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is the first time we've had, like, a really good discussion where we, where we don't agree, but we're not fighting. This is so good. Okay. Why are we ruining this? <laughs> All right, so this was educational. I, I you know, I think I think long. this will garner some emails from people. 
<laughs> hope so. Hey, Christopher Nolan, uh, when, when you get done listening to this, hit us yeah, up. Yeah, and, yeah. And send us your crazy Inception re-edit of our podcast. That would be very interesting and confusing, yeah. like Dunkirk. But anyways. Okay, well, good. Well, I'm glad we had this therapeutic impromptu discussion. Yeah. and okay, I think so in principle then... I'm right, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in, well, you know, in, in, in our, we, that's why we are legends in our own minds. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, okay. So I think that definitely brings us to the end of the news for, for, <laughs> for sure. I think so. Um, next week, we're going to try and, uh, fit in a bonus segment for next week. So we're, uh, we're probably not going to do news next week. Uh, we're looking at doing a fun copycat throwdown. Um, between Deep Blue Sea versus Lake Placid versus Anaconda. And the copycat aspect of it is, um, ensemble cast versus death creature. So in Deep Blue Sea, it's, it's, it's a, sh- it's sharks. In Lake Placid, giant alligator. And in Anaconda, of course, Anaconda. So, we're just kind of and they all came out pretty close together so we're just going to kind of have some fun and i think that's what we're going to shoot for as a bonus segment for next week so without further ado shall we get to our movie sir actual movies we must then let's go folks it is now time for the movie we And this week's movies are The Big Sick and Dunkirk. Which uh, one would you like to start with, sir? I think we ought to start off with Dunkirk. Keep this Nolan train running. <laughs> All right. Dunkirk, 2017 English war film written, co-produced, and directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, film stars Fionn Whitehead, Tom Glenn, Carney, Jack Loden, Harry Styles, Nuren Bernard, James Darcy, Barry Kogan, uh, Kenneth Brown. Anna, Cillian Murphy, Mark Rylance, and Tom Hardy. This, of course, is basically the Dunkirk evacuation. Uh, this was kind of the first major setback for the Allied forces in World War II. Uh, this was basically the wake-up call to tell uh, to tell the Allies that the Germans meant business and they knew exactly what the fuck they were doing. Um, and it takes place in three different sections, uh, what is called the Mole, which is basically the beachhead in Dunkirk, where they were actually, where the uh, hundreds of thousands of British troops were trapped. Uh, then, of course, we have the Sea, which is uh, where they are escaping to across the channel, trying to get to England. And the Air, which is where we have the uh, actual air support, because um, while they didn't have to worry so much about the tanks and the land effort because Germany knew they were trapped. Uh, there were U-boats involved, and then, of course, there were bomber crews. That basically, they're just to demoralize. Um, and so these are the three aspects that the movie takes place. And it follows, more or less, um, several different people, but each of the people that it's following... Um, the varying perspectives that of the people that is following intersect in weird ways, and also because of the way that they are doing the 
uh, following of these people over the course of the event, it, it has kind of a, an interesting timeline. And occasionally there are flashbacks and flash forwards, kind of. Um, and also the way that they cross over makes things kind of interesting. Now, the movie is Nolan. Okay. So I, I, the only other movie that I can really compare this to is going to be saving private Ryan. And I, and here's what I mean by that in terms of actually covering the realities of battle in world war two. Sure. There are tons of great movies out there. Um, Fury is one of the more recent ones. Of course, uh, David Ayer directed that. Um, and yet, in terms of actually, truly portraying realism, um, there was a gentleman in Canada. He's 97 years old. He made the local news and he's actually gone somewhat viral on YouTube, uh, who went and saw this movie, who served at Dunkirk. And it's really kind of moving to watch this 97-year-old man discuss his thoughts about the movie. So... That's out there if you'd like to go check it out. And I'd highly recommend that you do. But where Spielberg, his idea was to settle you in on one core group of men as they made their way through the differing aspects of the battlefield and the war itself, Nolan gives you the disparate aspects that sometimes cause convergence. And in doing so, they give you two different ways of experiencing battle. Both have their advantages. Ultimately, I feel like Spielberg's is somewhat better. Nolan gives you all these disparate actions and some, and so it can be very, very hard to follow the action and the narrative and intentionally. So also dialogue is very, very limited in this. Um, the sound design was, was such, and the score is such that that's there to guide you to kind of give you an idea of what you need to be feeling and the tension that's, that's existing in each scene. And they are exceptionally well done. The problem is, is that it doesn't fulfill the visual narrative that is required of the movie. And so you feel sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you feel a little bit confused. And much like the reality of battle, much like the reality of the helplessness and the hopelessness that was experienced by the people, by the men at Dunkirk, you're there too. The difference is though, is that instead of despairing and identifying with the movie in this regard, you kind of, it, it kind of breaks the illusion a little bit. And that's why I say that Spielberg pulls it off a little better because when you have a core group that is defined through dialogue, not just script action and sound, you are a, when you are confused, when you are 
left kind of like wondering, wait a minute, I'm confused. I don't understand what's happening here. You're able to fall into the characters that you have kind of, uh, that, that you know or that you are involved and related with as the movie progresses. Here, because, because Nolan wants that isolation for you, wants that desperation and that helplessness and that hopelessness for you, it's in my, it, in, in my experience, it instead kind of took me out instead of engrossed me more. Now, that's that's the biggest cr- criticism that I have for the movie. It's still a great movie. I really, really like this movie. And, and I know Tim is going to get into more of the sound design, but the score for this movie, holy fuckballs, is it awesome. It literally grabs you and doesn't let you go. And then there are times when it stops and you won't have noticed that it stopped. And then all of a sudden until you notice it's back again. That great. It is that Hans Zimmer, holy crap, if he doesn't get an Oscar, I'm going to be a little bit upset. He did that great of a job. I give this movie 4.25 out of 5. I highly recommend you see it, not even for history fans. I really think that this is a very unique take on World War II um, because we always focus, um, as the good guys who won, we always focus on the wins. We focus on, even when it gets tough, we focus on how we overcame and how we triumphed. And there is that aspect to this movie, but that's not the aspect to this movie. And I think it's great to see the things that galvanized the world during World War II. 4.25 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? So Christopher Nolan shot most of this movie, or I should say filmed most of this movie on 70mm, and I decided to go see this film in IMAX because of it. And I'm glad I did. It's worth the 20 bucks. It's all in 2D, so you don't have to worry about the 3D upcharge. But because the movie is shot actually in 70mm, it's worth checking out. That does have some downsides to it because the entire movie isn't shot in 70mm, so you get the change in aspect ratios. But at the same time, you also get a change in quality and color because some of it looks significantly clearer. Some of the colors are brighter and darker. Because the movie isn't a straight narrative, the timetable jumps around a bit. It makes the movie that much more confusing, at least for me. I don't know if that's necessarily a passable thing or not. And that's why I was asking if you saw it in IMAX, because I know you notice things like that as well. Because I I brought my uh, SO to go see it. I know, right? Two weekends in a row she comes to see a movie that normally she would not go see. However, she did like this one a lot more than War of the Planet of the Apes. But she didn't even notice the aspect ratio. And I thought it was pretty different. Because on the IMAX screen, there was five to eight feet of blank screen showing at the top and the bottom. So, I mean, you'd figure people would notice it unless you were just in the movie completely. You're in that experience, therefore you didn't even notice the change. But it was a little too obvious for me. Despite that, go and see this movie in IMAX. It's worth the money because the sound design is absolutely phenomenal. Back in 2014, in October, he came out with Interstellar. 
And that was a significant movie because it was Chris Nolan making a sci-fi movie. It was very reminiscent of 2001, how it makes people think a little bit about science and about humanity and if it's all worth it to go through this, even if you're gonna leave behind your family and possibly never see them again. The movie had a lot of depth to it. On the whole, it had a lot of depth. But when I went to go see this movie in 35mm, it was during a time when theaters weren't used to doing these type of specialty screenings or showings, so the theater experience was god-awful, the colors weren't great, the film itself looked already worn and tired, even though it came out that day, or it was released, that specific print was shown for the first time in that theater that day. And that just put a sour taste in my mouth. On top of all that, the movie just really isn't that great. Uh, I went back, and Matt helped me cobble together our ratings for Interstellar, and we both gave it three stars. So three all over the board. What made that movie at least good was the story and the ideas and the questions it raised. But the overall execution was a little bit too pretentious. And I believe one of my favorite reviews of yours ever came from Interstellar, where he said that it was basically Christopher Nolan showing us for three hours how smart he is. And in some way, in some way, Chris Nolan does the same with Dunkirk. But overall, the movie is better. I was talking about with Interstellar how when all the ducks align in a row perfectly, his movies are fantastic. You have The Dark Knight, Memento, I really like Insomnia. You also have Inception. Phenomenal movie. And I don't use that term lightly. It's phenomenal. It was a great movie theater experience, and it's a great home viewing experience as well. And those ducks fell out of place <laughs> with Inception. So luckily, I think with Dunkirk, he, you know, he managed to align a few of them. But too bad those ducks weren't as aligned as the soldiers are in this movie. There are so many fucking lines. People standing in lines in this movie. So overall, this was a better film experience quality-wise than Interstellar. However, the movie does have heavy Inception vibes. And I think this is the downfall of the film. You have a movie that the score is wonderful. Granted, it's a little bit repetitive. And the sound is phenomenal. Nolan's goal with this movie is to put the audience in that frame of mind. He wants the audience to experience, at least to have a taste of what these guys were going through in the atmosphere, the tone. But if you really wanted to do such a thing, was it really a point to completely inceptionize the movie? Therefore, it's not a completely linear narrative. And overall, it kind of confused me. I asked the SO, casual moviegoer she is, and she was confused. And once she figured out what was going on, it didn't make sense. And I agreed with her. Mild spoiler alert, but not really. Was there really a point to show Cillian Murphy's character troubled on the verge of a psychotic breakdown when he gets on the boat with the common folk? And then soon after show him trying to help people out of the water and being an all right guy. But really, there really wasn't a lot of meat there to show him being an alright guy, so I really don't even know if that was his intentions or not. It just really didn't work as a whole. God damn, this movie sounded good. Therefore, I think it's worth seeing at a movie theater, and again, if you can, in IMAX. And I think probably my biggest praise for the movie is that I kind of like not having that swooping melodramatic music 
you know, in those moments, those melodramatic moments that we often see in other standard linear told World War II movies. Like, I, I forget the Angelina Jolie movie where about the guy who got lost, he got captured by the Japanese, and it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's a good movie, but it's very melodramatic, and you have the swooping score, and it's all about strength and perseverance. And you see this also with Spielberg movies. Granted, his movies, I think, are significantly better. You, you kind of see a lot of copycats, where that whole way of, of developing a character and showing a character arc is through, like, the swooping, melodramatic-ish John Williams music. And it was nice not having it. But a big chunk of the score is hearing the tick of a clock. And it just becomes repetitive by the end. You hear the music, you hear the clock, and it builds up so fast. Like, it reaches its limit so quick, it can't go anywhere else. And that's where the movie doesn't become great. It hits its limit quick, and it has nowhere else to go. By the end of the movie, I was ready for it to be over. It didn't leave me with longing, impressionistic feelings and memories. Which is why I call this an experience film. And I ask you, Matt, does that make a great movie, though? At least in my mind, it becomes too strategic and redundant by the end, where the movie really didn't have the meat. And if you were to say that the movie does have meat, it is just really the experience I was talking about. I would have to say whether or not the experience involved resonates with you. But I do think that if you're going to call a film an experience, then by default it has enough value that everybody should see it once. Yeah, and I mean, that's what I'm saying. To to find out if that experience resonates with them. But just because it's an experience film, I don't think necessarily makes it a great film. Right. And uh, in that, I mean, so I'm juggling between a couple ratings here. (laughs) It's either 3.75 or 4. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. For what it is, I thoroughly enjoy it. I'd give it a four. But based on principle, I want to give it a 3.75. Well, then give it a 3.75. No, but but then it's like, I mean, it's significantly better than... I'm going to give it a four. Because it's significantly fucking better than Interstellar. And we gave Interstellar a three. And this is at least one fucking star better than <laughs> than Interstellar. <laughs> um, but I, I one other question I wanted to ask. And this is mainly Christopher Nolan fans. And I know... There are other movie podcasts out there that take part in the collective Christopher Nolan circle jerk. And and I just want to know, like, where where do you sit within that Christopher Nolan circle jerk? Do you think Christopher Nolan is this amazing, fantastic, perfect director who knows exactly what he's doing? Therefore, he is. No, he makes no bad film or whatever. Or do you think he's a little bit overrated? I should say. I do not think he's overrated per se, but Interstellar proved he is not flawless. And I think at least Batman or The Dark Knight Rises proves he's not flawless as well. I give him a little bit more of a pass on Dark Knight Rises, mainly because he had so many strands in that stupid can of worms that he literally had to close because he knew he wasn't coming back. Um, And I think that's why it was a bit of a mess in the third act. But... um, All in all, I'm you know, I, I recognize that there are some problems with that movie, but I don't. But it wasn't until, um, for me, it wasn't until Interstellar. Interstellar is where um, he had a misstep, and he proved that uh, he could make a mistake. Yeah, but again, four point 
zero out of zero. five. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, then last but not least, we have the big sick. This was fun. Wait, we haven't even had sex again yet. I'm just not that kind of girl. I only have sex once on the first date. I'm just going <laughs> to call an Uber. <laughs> your driver will be ready soon as he puts on his pants. He's your bad Watch and learn, bye. Oh, cross. I have to tell you something, bye. I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? Hey, you can't look like you and yell white girl. It's okay. We hate terrorists. I wonder who that could be. I'm guessing it's a young, single Pakistani woman. This is Zubeda. For your files, your X-Files. That's your favorite show, huh? <laughs> the truth is out there. <laughs> <laughs> Are you judging Pakistan's next top model? You know how we have arranged marriage in my culture? Oh my god, I'm so stupid. Can you imagine a world in which we end up together? I don't know. I'm looking for Emily Gardner. She was checked in tonight. There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma. Coma. You should call her family. Thank you, Kamala. We're gonna handle things from here. I think I'm just gonna wait anyway. You guys broke up. I'm not sure why you're here. I'm just gonna stay for a second. Is this seat? Okay. Is that lady still looking at me? So, uh, 9-11. I've always wanted to have a conversation with people. You've never talked to people about 9-11? I'm still Do anything, you gotta call the games. No, I've never. You play, you can't rhyme it. You try to find a word that nobody can rhyme. Okay. Stonehenge. Yeah, see, you would win. Yeah. I think I screwed up with your daughter. Yeah, you did. Let me give you some advice, Kamal. Love isn't easy. That's why they call it love. to get that I, know. I thought I could just start saying something and something small would come out alright big sick um, it's a romantic comedy as you probably heard from the trailer there um, it's directed by Michael Showalter uh, and this is produced by Judd Apatow and Barry Mendel uh, the film stars Kumail Nanjiani Zoe Kazan uh, Holly Hunter Ray Romano Adil Akhtar and An- Anupam Kerr so what we have is Camille is a comedian. He's living in Chicago, trying to make ends meet, do his thing, and he comes across this girl that heckles him, and, of course, they end up uh, in a relationship. Things get a little bit um, rough because he is um, Pakistani, and his family wants to do arranged marriage, and, of course, he's in love with a white girl, which is a big problem for them. Things kind of come to a head with his girlfriend, and she ends up in the hospital and uh, in a coma. And now he's got to deal with that and her parents and his parents and whatever is the boy to do. Um, and as I always like to say, shenanigans ensue. Um, you know what? I don't really have a lot to say about this film. This is a movie that is definitely designed to kind of broaden your horizons in terms of the reality 
of 21st century um, conservatism in the Muslim faith, traditionalism in foreign culture, and how it actually relates in the real world to people who care enough to actually get involved. Um, and sometimes you, you're dragged kicking and screaming into that involvement. Um, it's a very overall even film, but I do feel that they, uh, it, it gets a little too touchy feely. It, it, you know, it gets a little too tear jerky. Um, and, and because of that, it hurts the overall message of the movie. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that it's just a, it's just a fun movie. Despite its seriousness, you can't help, you just kind of can't help but relate. It's like, you you see your screwed up family in in this crazy un uh, almost unseemingly realistic scenario. I give this one four point two five out of five as well. I think it's fun. I definitely think you should see it. Um, it is like I said, a little too heavy handed and tries to be tear jerky, but um, even with the tan fistedness, the soul is there. And I think you will enjoy it too. 4.25 out of 5. Bring us home, Tim. So since, you know, like more than likely Dunkirk is going to be winning the Oscar for sound, sound mixing, and, and maybe even score, according <laughs> to you, do you think this movie has a chance to be at least nominated for screenplay? Um, Because that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted you to see it and why I kind of wanted to review it on the show because I think it's a very, personally, I know I just asked you a question, but at least I personally think it's, it's 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 unique enough for a romantic comedy or I guess a dramedy that it very well could be nominated, especially how how it mirrors human life. If it wasn't so ham-fisted, I would say yes. On the flip side, given its subject matter and where the Academy is currently at in its efforts to be um, more global, I guess we could say would be a nice way to put it. Um, I could see it getting a nod. I, I I don't think, as it stands now, I would say no, but I think we should put a pin in it, and let's talk about it when we have a better idea of what we're looking at towards the end of the year. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> I really like this movie so much that I, I wrote a little bit about it, just to kind of get the point across that it's it's different. And which is why I think this movie has been getting so much buzz and why Amazon spent so much money in purchasing this film at a, at whatever film festival. Earlier this year, Judd Apatow in Universal released The 40-Year-Old Virgin in April of 2005. And that movie introduced audiences to a, I think, a fresh take on the cinematic romantic comedy storytelling. And being a film jam-packed with foul language and raunchiness, and with a premise about a likable but naive 40-year-old man who has gone all his life without sex, one would not suspect the 40-year-old virgin to have heart. Judd Apatow has either produced or directed a number of films. Most of them follow the same formula, in which the films are normally composed of 75% hard R expletives and quips, and then 25% of heartfelt or real-life drama. Seth Rogen would adopt the same formula with the exception of the long runtime and 
having far less than 25% melodrama. Apatow succeeded with his first few movies until the melodramatic punch became either too heavy-handed or predictable. There is no doubt, however, that Apatow influenced the raunch-fest rom-coms of the last decade. Very much like how Woody Allen did the same throughout the late 70s and 80s. I remember going to see 40-Year-Old Virgin when it first came out. I think I saw it twice at the movie theater and thought it was hilarious. I haven't seen an, uh, you know, a, a movie quite like that. It was longer, but it was still entertaining. And I actually felt sorry for the guy because he was naive, Steve Carell, and, and, and very likable. Though he was surrounded by all these kind of assholes and dipshits and not really great people. It was just the fundamentals of being so naive in that he had this code he lived by that I, that I, that I thought was kind of novel and, and interesting. And he just failed being like his friends, being like the douchebags that, that surround him. So I went into the big sick, unaware of Apatow's involvement as a producer. And if I was aware, I doubt it would have made a difference because... I think his role came into play once the film was already picked up at whatever film festival it was picked up at. And the film only shares one commonality with an Apatow-directed flick, and that's a longer runtime. Unlike Apatow's flicks, which suffer from the runtime as well as other characterizations and, and justifying why and how crass people are forced into very human decisions like everyone else in real life, the big sick plays out naturally and attempts not at humanizing the characters throughout the course of the runtime, but allows the characters to interact and develop in a completely natural state. I'm only familiar with Kumal Nanjiani, who plays himself in the big sick through his role in Silicon Valley where in Silicon Valley, he plays a one-note, often monotone, quippy character, where it's very entertaining to hear what comes out of his mouth next. Now, if Apatel wrote and directed The Big Sick, Kumal would have been more of an extrovert, with heavy dialogue. And his character transformation would have taken place at the start of the third act, reshaping the tone of the overall narrative, because it would, it would have the, the melodramatic taste. But his character in... The Big Sick, which is basically himself, doesn't go through a transformation, but an honest-to-goodness realization. For example, when Kumal meets and begins dating Emily, he doesn't automatically realize the seriousness of their romantic connection. They both make a pact to never see each other again after their initial rendezvous, but they do. And eventually she clearly falls for him. She falls in love with him. As well does he with her. But there's that constant thought that their relationship would never work out due to his Indian culture and his parents' unwillingness to accept a non-Indian daughter-in-law. Now, Emily breaks up with Kumal after she discovers a box full of headshots of the women whom his mother attempts to court Kumal with. And Kumal goes back to his old, same routine, which includes quickly seeing other women as he's thinking that Emily, you know, she should have understood his culture and the predicament more that he's faced. But after he discovers that she's sick and went into a coma, he quickly realizes that it was up to him to make things work. He should have stood up to his parents instead of hiding, especially after meeting Emily's parents, who were willing to accept the relationship with open arms. I mean, he basically severs his relationship with this family 
Regardless, he decides to do this even though there's a good chance that Emily won't even take him back when she does wake up. One of the critics who wrote this movie off as a missed opportunity complained a lot about the nearly two-hour runtime, and he said that he longed for the time of when romantic comedies didn't have a story arc comparable to The Lord of the Rings. In my opinion, that critic unfairly lumps this film into the same group as Judd Apatow's work. What makes The Big Sick more unique is that there's no bait and switch. Kumal learns how to take charge of his life and dreams without needing mom and dad's permission. Kumal is not a, a man-baby like Seth Rogen. He doesn't have to grow up because he's already mature and capable enough to manage his life without having to be put through this life-changing realization. However, there is just one downfall to this movie, and that is Kumal's acting ability. Kumal as an actor, playing himself. When the moment calls for rage and emotion... He hits the mark, but when the moment calls for tenderness or that in-between feeling of uncertainty, you see Kumal struggle. And that's why I give this one 4.5 out of 5. It's really good. It could even be a 4.75 out of 5. I think initially, right after I saw the movie, I gave it a 4.75, but right now I'm giving it a 4.5. I think this is probably my second favorite movie of the year. Actually, no, I'm going to give it a 4.75 out of 5. Because that's, I, I meant that went right after the movie was over, that's what I gave it. So I'm going to stick to it. God damn it. 4.75 out of 5. Second favorite movie of the year. I just really hope you guys do check it out. There's a reason why it did get a wide release. And there is a reason why this movie is doing pretty well at the box office. So do check out The Big Sick. And I'm happy, Matthew, that you enjoyed it as well. Well, of course uh yeah so next week's movie is going to be valerian and the city of a thousand planets uh because why not make it sound a whole lot of cool right i mean it's supposed to be a really big deal so i have to make it sound like a really big deal and uh, i think without further ado it is now time for the spiel is it not sir spiel on is there something wrong with the food no the food was excellent perhaps you're not happy with the service no 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 complaints it's just that we have to go i'm having rather a heavy period and we have a train to catch Yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch, and I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio and or track us down on the old sound. Cloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Ray Romano, I get to say this. Everyone should have kids. They are the greatest joy in the world, but they are also terrorists. You'll realize this as soon as they're born, and they start using sleep deprivation to break you. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam? Ha!
perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>